Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with the author of The Prescription to Prison Pipeline, The Medicalization and Criminalization of Pain. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on here, Deidre. Uh, My name is spelled or pronounced uh, Smirnova, uh, Michelle Smirnova, but I'm really excited to talk with you today. Great. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. Absolutely. Um, So my name is Michelle Smirnova. I'm an associate professor of sociology and affiliate faculty with the Race, Ethnic, and Gender Studies Department at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. I, my background is in medical sociology and also in the sociology of resistance um, and collective movements. And so I, I kind of was approached about this project uh, when I uh, joined uh, the University of Missouri. Um, a faculty member in the criminal justice department knew that I taught quite a bit about um, issues related to criminalization, um, but that I hadn't done research in that area before. And she approached me because she had been doing research on uh, methamphetamine um, and particularly women um, who cooked um, or sold meth. And in her interviews, she heard um, quite a bit about uh, prescription drugs, uh, about this is something that people should be paying attention to. Um, this professor's name was uh, Jennifer Owens. And um, so we set off on this research together because she knew that I did a lot of research on medicalization and medical sociology, and there was this sort of intersection at play. Um, So we set off to uh, do this research um, sort of as people were starting to pay attention to what people often refer to as the opioid epidemic. and sort of came at it from this lens of um, here are these substances that people are using um, in ways that might be problematic. And we started interviewing um, people who were incarcerated. And as I was hearing these stories, um, I was hearing the stories of people who were using all sorts of prescription drugs, not limited to opioids, and in ways that were not unlike the way other people use prescription drugs, um, who may have uh, the oversight of a doctor may have a prescription um, for those um, drugs. And so seeing sort of this blurry line um, And also how they had internalized this idea that, well, 
I'm necessarily abusing these um, and that I have an addiction. I have an addictive personality. Um, Yet they were describing how they were using these substances to manage trauma, um, abuse, um, to help them on the job or at home um, in ways not unlike um, a lot of the general public who uses uh, prescription drugs. And so this kind of got at a lot of the issues um, that I decided that was really important to write a book about, about um, the medicalization of our society, um, the criminalization of our society, and who is more likely to be criminalized for the similar similar behaviors that other people are engaged in, and how um, our healthcare system and carceral systems are um, much more intertwined than people are led to believe. Um, so... That's how I kind of stumbled into this work um, and then tried to make sense of it all in the book that I wrote uh, that we're discussing today. Now, in your chapter, I think it was one, you talk about the World Health Organization and their mandate of freedom from pain. And they said it was a universal human right. Can you tell us about this? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think... um, I talked a little bit about this um, universal human right because uh, it really centers this issue that a lot of these issues um, involve a lot of well-intentioned people. Um, And so this universal right to protect people from pain is on the surface a really great right that people shouldn't suffer undue pain. Um, And I think part of this um, decree was oriented towards people in different medical settings um, or in the dying process that they should have the right to be free of pain. Uh, And so if there is access to um, medication that can alleviate some of that pain, that that should not be withheld from people. Um, But one of the challenges of these um, sort of decrees is that it's it's offered, but there isn't the framework for what that looks like. Um, and so, um, as we know, in a consumerist market-based economy, that there will be people who come and fill that need and say, here, we can provide this for you. And that's precisely what happened in the United States um, in that pharmaceutical companies came to fill that gap um, and say that here we can offer um a way to prevent pain um, and thinking of pain in sort of these limited terms of um, uh, somatic pain um, that can be treated with uh, opioids. And um, in fact, pain is, uh, as we know, very broad um, thing that can be experienced on emotional levels and psychological levels and has structural um, sources rather than um corporal sources. So um, it sort of reduced what pain is and how it should be treated. And we thought about it in these limited terms. And some of these limited terms are the way that we end up with the problems we have today. Um, So yeah, I think that's, I'm not sure if that was responding to your question appropriately. Absolutely. Now you give us examples and you talk about a person by the name of Lindsay and how she really represented the prescription to prison pipeline. Can you tell us about that example? Sure. Um, so 
I opened the book with the story of Lindsay, um, in part because her story on the, the face of it, we hear this, this story of experiencing a lot of pain um, and a lot of trauma um, that she experienced in her life. And um, it's surprising that she ends up uh, in a prison cell, which um, is where I end up interviewing her. Um, she grew up uh, being diagnosed with leukemia at a young age and so spent a lot of time in and out of doctor's offices, unclear um, where whether her life um, would continue. Um, she had a really abusive father um, who abused and terrorized everyone in their family. Several of her siblings were um, removed um, into foster care. Um, she remained in the care of um, her father, um, which she didn't quite understand why. Um, and she really, she wanted to escape this life. Um, she ends up, um, finding, uh, falling in love, um, with this, uh, man. They end up having, uh, getting pregnant. Um, she's really excited to finally leave this situation. Um, and during that time, she, um, uh, she ends up having her um, kid moving out of the house, um, but then her her child's um, heart isn't um, fully developed, ends up developing pneumonia and dying at three months. Um, just devastating, devastating um, story. And then her relationship falls apart. Um, he ends up being abusive and um, at all of these stages of her life, um, when she was young with leukemia, when she has um, her child, um, in response to the abuse, she's prescribed um, all sorts of medication to manage depression, anxiety, pain. Um, she's prescribed Vicodin for her C-section, all sorts of surgeries. Um, and after a while, she just these are the one constant in her life and the thing that actually helps her continue through all these hardships. Um, and then her scripts run out, um, which is often the case. And unlike some other people who may have more social or financial capital and have ways to um, re-up their script when it runs out, she didn't. Um, and so she started, She a friend helped her um, get access to some Xanax um, and then uh, she gets access to someone suggests meth as a way um, to uh, keep up her energy. And so we see how there ends up this blurry line between so-called legal and illegal drugs. Um, and so she ends up arrested um, when she they find uh, I think she was speeding. Um, she gets pulled over by an officer. They find a pill bottle that doesn't have her name on it. And um a series of events, she ends up incarcerated. And so the story, I think, really illustrates um, just this really devastating story um, of somebody's life and all the hardships they face and how our approaches to um, helping these people end up hurting them even more. Um, so that she's not receiving the support she needs um, as a mother, as a child, um, as a spouse, um, and instead she's just further punished. Um, she's punished, um, in terms of, um, the prescription and then withdrawal of those prescriptions and then the criminalization, um, of her situation and ending up 
um, incarcerated. So um, I open with that story just because I think it really illustrates um, how complicated these issues are and humanizes these issues um, and and sort of counters this notion of, well, there's these these bad people, these addicts um, who need to turn their lives around without seeing how a lot of our institutions are failing um, people. And it's these failings that are then further exacerbating and harming um, people like Lindsay. Now, this really um, is, is a connection going on between medicalization and criminalization. Can you explain that? Sure, absolutely. So it might be helpful to start off with um, some definitions. Um, so I, I said that I do a lot of research on medical sociology and medicalization. Um, and medicalization is the process by which um, previously non-medical events become medical events. Um, medical events that require a doctor to diagnose and to treat, um, often involving pharmaceuticals, um, but not always Um we can think of um, attention deficit disorder as an example. Um, people who, children um, previously being understood as uh, being restless or not being able to sit still or pay attention for um, some time and increasingly has become a medicalized diagnosis. Um, and relatedly, um, criminalization refers to things that become criminalized um, that may not have been criminalized before. And we can see some things that become criminalized and then become decriminalized. Um, Recently, um, all um, issues with marijuana um, were previously criminalized and then decriminalized. Um, But we can think of uh, similar related to this book about addiction, um, this term um, uh, that underwent initially this idea. It was a sort of a religious idea of this is a moral failing. And then we see the transition from addiction being treated as this moral failing to being this criminal uh, behavior. So that this is um, uh, a sign that someone is is breaking the law. Um, and increasingly in our society, we see how um, substance use is being medicalized, um, that Um, Actually, addiction is a a medical diagnosis that requires treatment rather than punishment. And so this seems like this humanistic development of um, we're no longer punishing people for substance use, um, that we're treating them for substance use. Um, When in fact, a lot of our approaches are still very punitive. Um, They're tied to the carceral systems, for one. Um, But they also... um, they're coercive, um, that they don't um, allow people to um, choose whether or not they receive this treatment. It's, well, you either need to serve time uh, as prison or serve time in a treatment center when um, these two are often very similar in nature. And uh, this is sort of related to Michel Foucault's argument about um, discipline and punishment um, that in the prison setting, the focus is on the body, um, the focus on controlling the body. You are um, isolated to a prison cell, um, that you can't move um, to see your family and um, outside of um, that setting. 
And the treatment approach um, goes deeper. It, it, it wants to control the mind. Um, and I saw this in these interviews, talking to people, as I sort of described in the beginning, who described themselves as, well, an addict's just an addict. I'm a junkie. Um, I have an addictive personality. It's to my core. It's in my genes. And I, I, I can't undo it. Um, and so they've they've internalized this notion of who they are because that's part of the so-called treatment. Um, and so in terms of this relationship between medicalization and criminalization, there's a number of different ways these work. Um, as I described this idea of either, or that you can either go to prison or go to this treatment sy uh, system. So this is how they are intertwined, but also how, um, increasingly these two things are collapsed that, substance use is, it's medicalized, it's treated as though this is a medical condition rather than a criminal condition, but it's still treated under these criminal uh, or these carceral systems by drug courts, um, by these um, coercive treatment programs. Um, and in a lot of ways, this um, uh, ends up using sort of essentialist logic. Um, so unlike... Uh, a, a criminal sentence that um, you you serve your time and then um, you're done, um, which obviously is not exactly the case um, with our system of uh, felonies and people who are barred from treatment or barred from um, voting and other rights as a result of um, their time. But the, the medicalization of someone's substance use, it it becomes this permanent um, element of their identity that they can never not be an addict and never not be a junkie. And as this is fused with the criminal system, they can never not be a criminal addict. Um, so they are, it's sort of essentializing this notion of they are forever an addict and forever a criminal. And so these two systems, instead of this transition becoming more humane um, and um, treating people with dignity and respect is actually doing the inverse. And that's sort of um, one of the stories that I try and tell in this book. Now, you also gave us profiles of who's more likely to be arrested for opiates and cocaine and all of those drugs. Tell us about that profile. Well, um, I mean, I think... Uh, a lot of people um, who may be listening to this um, may be aware that um, substance use is actually pretty roughly the same amongst um, racial groups. Um, and yet the policing and surveillance of um, different groups is, is not the same. Um, and so um, across the board for all of um, these substances, um, Black people are more than double, um, sometimes as high as 10 times as likely to be arrested um, on drug charges overall. Um, this is true um, for heroin and, and cocaine and opiates as well. Um, and so this is sort of at the heart of the issue of who's more likely um, to use and who's more likely to um, be arrested. And this relates to um, what communities are under greater police surveillance. Um, so if there's more police officers um, looking for crime, 
they will find more crime. Um, and so then it becomes a high crime rate area, not because there's actually more people engaged in this behavior there. It's because there are people looking for it there. Um, so, uh, across the board, we see, um, particularly black and Latinx, um, people are more likely to be, um, arrested for, these issues, um, despite the fact that white people um, are just as likely to be using um, these substances. And uh, in terms of uh, sex and gender, um, similarly, um, uh, I found that a lot of people even perceived that it was more commonly, uh, more common that white women uh, were using opioids than um, other populations, um, but that they weren't being arrested for it because white women are much less much less likely to be surveyed and arrested and incarcerated um, in general. Now, let's back up. Tell us about the interview process, the people you uh, interviewed in Missouri. Sure. Um, yeah. So this was a very long process. Um, we needed to get uh, a lot of permissions from the state. Um, we worked with the wardens of the specific facilities um, to engage. Um, this was a multi-site process. Um, so we started by getting um, a lot of permissions. Um, we also got um, a permission um, from, um, the DOJ, um, a certificate of confidentiality, because it was really most important to us to protect the identities of the people we were talking to. Um, and so, um, we used a waiver of documentation of consent rather than, um, a, a consent, a traditional consent form. Um, and this waiver enables people to participate without signing their names, um, and so there was no way to know who um, participated. Um, and uh, we did, there was uh, linkage initially um, with a, the survey. I'll walk us through the survey and the interview component, but um, in terms of who was paid, so who participated, um, but from almost immediately, we were unable to identify who said what. Um, and we also received this um, certificate of confidentiality so that um, when we were walking out of the prisons on the couple days before things were de-identified, that no one could subpoena um, our uh, our transcripts or our um, recordings um, and use anything that people said um, against them. And so, again, this was very important, um, and this is something I really grappled with Um in terms of doing research with incarcerated people, um, that this is inherently a coercive environment. Um, and so despite the fact that we might say, um, you have every right to stop, you this is voluntary, you don't have to participate, um, I, we need to recognize that we are people who are coming in um, with these credentials as um, professors and we are we have permission of the wardens and um, other authority figures in the prison settings and so there may be a lot of people who feel as though they have to participate that this is going to impact um, how they're perceived and so this is something I really struggled with um, in the research because um, I think at the same time we know that a lot of incarcerated people, they're silenced, um, that this is intentional. They aren't um, allowed to vote. Um, they often aren't able to tell their stories of what happened inside or outside of prisons. 
and um, that this is really important um, to be able to challenge the narratives and the things that um, are supposed supposed to improve um, these systems, we're not listening to the people who are impacted by them. And so this was um, really a focus, a lot of these interviews about how they think um, these systems should work. And so I thought it was really important to talk to them, but also recognizing that I want to protect them above all else and prevent any coercion above all else. And um, so we started off by um, sending out a a double-sided survey um, to uh, inmates at a number of um, facilities and um, they could respond about how they use different um, substances and they were compensated $5 for um, this um, um, survey. Then based on that survey, um, we we collected them. They were in a lockbox that nobody had access to um, and uh, in a day's time, we identified people based on those um, interviews uh, or those surveys, people who might be helpful to t- do, conduct an interview with. And so we conducted these um, hour to two long, two hour um, interviews um, based on those responses. And so these people who were invited to do an interview um, were compensated $20. And these figures sound very low. Um, And yet we were also um, told um, that these figures could be very high. These could be coercive figures because these um, uh, people who are incarcerated are paid pennies um, for work. This is a major issue in our country as well um, in terms of prison labor and how people are exploited and paid not just below the minimum wage, but below what we would people in um, other countries um, are paid um, and they have no other option. So they will cons- so-called consent to this work because it's um, paid so much below um, or it's the only thing that they can make. And so, again, this was something that we um, were challenged, um, that this was the figure of $20 um, was a coercive sum of money, that there was no way they could say no. Um, yet, we pay people outside of um, prisons twenty and forty dollars for an interview, and so it felt um, unjust to um, compensate them less. And so twenty dollars for an hour of their time um, uh, feels appropriate if that's what we're doing outside of the prison setting. So, again, these are very complicated um, issues, and unfortunately, it doesn't feel like. Um, there's a right answer um, at times. And this was something I struggled with about writing this book at all, um, that I wanted to tell um, these stories, especially people who took the time to share this with me and who really wanted to um, have input into um, these systems, but also this feeling of uh, I'm exploiting um, them, that I'm using their stories um, in these ways. And um, so I think probably anyone who's engaged in qualitative research, um, who has a heart, um, who wrestles with some of these ideas. Um, but doing this in the carceral setting particular, I think is particularly challenging. Um, and, um, I tried to do my best and I feel like I learned a lot through the process and I hope that this book does promote some of the changes, um, that will make their lives 
a little better or people who are in similar um, situations make them less harmful. Now, one of the nuggets that you covered in your book was the number of people who have experienced a parent, spouse, child, or sibling in jail. Tell us about that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think some people think of prisons as this faraway thing that it doesn't impact their lives. Um, and that's absolutely not the case. Um it's actually designed this way. Like the reason that prisons are in these remote areas, that they're barred off, that they're so hard to get to and for people to visit is to remove them from our social imagination. Um, and so we don't have to think about people over there because they're not people. Um, they're not a part of our society. They're not our citizens. They don't vote. They don't matter. Um, and so we see lots of ways that this is intentionally designed. Um and there's also a lot of shame around incarceration that um, if someone's arrested, um, that they often don't share that with a lot of people. And this is something that is culturally produced. Um, and so it's something that um, individuals hide, that families hide, communities hide, because it feels like it's, again, this transition from this was a religious moral failing to now it's a criminal failing. Um, but that that moralization is still there. Um, there's this idea that, well, if you've been arrested, it's because you're a bad person. Um, you've been arrested because you've done something harmful to other people um, with intent um, and that you deserve it um, rather than um, there were people looking for crime um, and you were someone who they were looking for in particular. So there's a lot of shame around um prisons and incarceration. And so as a result, um, people uh, keep a lot of this to themselves. And the the numerical reality is very different. Um, almost half of people in the U.S. Um, have um, experienced either the incarceration of a parent, a spouse, child, sibling, um, a family member. Um, and so this is something that impacts us all um, and at the same time, it also disproportionately impacts communities of color. So another reason why some people may feel as though it's this distant thing is because if they're white, if they're affluent, um, they are less likely to um, be personally impacted or um, have a close family member impacted because, again, they have that financial and social capital that can get them out of um uh, that arrest out of serving time, paying off um, uh, their their bail, what have you. Um, so uh, black adults um, are much more likely to, I think twice as likely as um, white adults to have an immediate family member incarcerated. Um, Latinx individuals similarly, um, I think 70% more likely than whites um, to be locked up for more than a year. And so this has really devastating impacts on the individuals themselves, but as we know, their families and their communities, um, removing um, a parent, many children grow up without parents, um, and this impacts them financially, um, but also impacts them in socially and emotionally and psychologically, um, whether they're uh, they're, they're cared for by another family member or they're put in foster care, which is um, just devastating for everybody involved. Um, and so it decimates communities, families, and individuals um, in different ways. And again, this is something that is constructed as this 
far off issue that doesn't impact people um, in part because people may not feel comfortable speaking out about it um, because there's intentionally this shame that's shrouding these conversations. Now, another nugget, you talk about the high rates of juveniles um, in Missouri that are in custody. Is there a connection between juvenile custody and the number of people who are prescribed uh, drugs such as Xanax? Um, You know, I can't infer causality from my data, and I don't have um, sort of those numbers on hand, but um, we do know uh, sort of one of the things that is very clear um, from these stories is how trauma and adverse effects are increasingly medicalized in our society. Um, So they are... um, uh, people are prescribed Xanax or similar um, tranquilizers or sedatives um, to manage that trauma and anxiety. Um, And a lot of people who are incarcerated, particularly as children, have experienced a lot of trauma and abuse. And that's um, a a lot of the reason why they end up um, in those situations, again, punishing rather than supporting and helping um, these kids. And again, this sort of so-called humanistic approach is, well, we're going to give them this support in the form of a pill. Um, And yet um, this pill may end up being something that they are eventually criminalized for and then sort of extends their custody from juvenile um, uh, custody to incarceration as an adult. You make the argument that social problems are product of the environment. Tell us about these social problems. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think this is sort of in relation to how a lot of these things are treated as biological problems um, that um, require um, medical treatment, that um, someone who is suffering from anxiety and depression and um all sorts of medical diagnoses. Um, uh, over 50% of people who are incarcerated are diagnosed with some sort of uh, mental health um, issue. And um, this all speaks to the ways that we treat these things as, well, this is something individual level, um, that it's something you individually are struggling with and that um, that's not incorrect, um, but that it's not something that's produced by the environment, the social environment. Um, And so um, these things are produced by poverty, by racism, by sexism, heterosexism, um, in the form of um, housing um, insecurity and the inaffordability of childcare and healthcare and education, um, or the exposure to violence, um, that these are um, things that are produced by our um, society by divesting in communities, by not providing people with support, um, financial or social support um, in these ways. And so people experience trauma, the trauma of um, uh, poverty and discrimination. And um, then we sort of offer this Band-Aid fix of, well, we can offer you this pill to treat this, um, which can result in more problems, um, but really most um, significantly diverts our attention from the real source of these problems, um, the the lack of a social safety net um, and the lack of support um, and uh 
sort of invigorating environment um, for people, particularly communities of color um, and uh, already poor um, communities. Now, from your interviews, did you find that medicine and prison work together in some way? Yeah. And so that's kind of what I talked about in terms of um, these sort of forced treatment um, programs. So we see some ways this um, a false choice of um, serve time in a prison versus serve time in um, a um, treatment facility. But also um, this is actually the subject of uh, a a, a wonderful book written by the soci- sociologist um, Anthony Hatch um, called Silent Cells, um, the secret drugging of captive America. And um, Hatch argues that um, medicine, particularly psychotropics, are this essential technology that are used to subdue and control institutionalized populations. So um, that prisons would actually not be possible were it not for the drugging of um, the people in there. Um, And so that is something that I saw also in my interviews, um, talking to people who um, were prescribed lots of these medications in a carceral setting. Um, And then those end up being um, the substances that they use non-medically once they're released. And then will in turn be reincarcerated for. And um, so we see how this just becomes this perpetuating cycle. Um, And again, that it's um, medicine is treated as this more humane, quote unquote, alternative, um, when in fact, it's really a linchpin of prisons and the the recidivism um, cycle that many of um, incarcerated people experience. In chapter two, you talk about a case, um, the lady's name is Penny. Tell us about her road to addiction. Um, sure. Um, yeah, so Penny um, was similar um, to Lindsay in terms of just experiencing a lot of trauma growing up. Um, she was abused um, by both her parents, um, her father, um, uh used a lot of substances. Um, and during all of these times, similar to Lindsay, she was prescribed a lot, a lot of medication. Um, she describes Percocet and Xanax and Darvocet and Vicodin and, um, just to, um, mitigate all sorts of, um, psychological, emotional, and physical, um, abuses. And, um, then she ends up giving birth uh, via cesarean section, given um, many more pain pills. Um, and after this series of um, prescriptions and using for a long time, she finally is no longer prescribed uh, these pills. And she experiences intense withdrawal, um, which um, lots of people describe as the sensation of drowning that Um, you can't breathe. Um, And this is the way um, a a lot of these medications are designed. um, And yet she's offered nothing to help her um, with this. And so she just becomes desperate um, to get, um, to get more and doesn't really know how to go about it. And the only way she knows how to go about it is um, through a doctor um, because that's the way she's historically gotten this when she has been beaten by her father or mother. Um, And so she describes how she would ask someone to hit her with a baseball bat um, or climb up in a tree and fall out of it. Um, So 
cut herself with a knife, um, whatever she can to injure herself in ways that are obvious so that she will go to the emergency room and someone will give her a prescription um, for this pain. And I think her story illustrates just how painful withdrawal is um, because someone could imagine, well, why would you intentionally throw yourself out of a tree? Um, and it, it, it really it really illustrates the magnitude, um, just how intense um, this withdrawal can be and that she would prefer to have this to be able to get access to um, those pills than to um, experience that drowning. So um, she was one of these more extreme stories, um, but really, I think, gets at the heart of just how challenging it is um, struggling with the, the physical pain, the withdrawal symptoms um, for things related to depression and anxiety and uh, physical pain, um, and just the lengths at which people will go um, in order to um, survive, um, that it really is about survival um, above all else. Now, many of the people you interviewed said that their road to destruction started with a doctor's visit. What did you find there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Penny's case and Lindsay's case um, sort of reflect that, that there were a number of people. Um, Betsy was another um, person who I wrote about. And um, she she said specifically that uh, the doctor wrote her this uh, prescription for opioids and then ruined her life. Um, that, um, that a lot of um, people said that I, I didn't even think that I needed something, whether it be opioids or um, a sedative or tranquilizer, something for, um, again, emotional, psychological, physical pain, um, and that they weren't receiving the support that they needed. Um, they weren't um, being provided a living wage um, or childcare or education or job opportunities or housing um, or any of the things that they ultimately needed uh, protection from violence. Um, and again, this is, these are well-intentioned people who are providing them with these scripts, but um, they felt as though this prescription didn't help their situation. Um, in fact, it just made it worse. Um, and so again, it's, it's not that the drugs themselves are necessarily bad, that these are really important drugs that help a lot of people, um, but that our over-reliance on them and use of these um, uh, substances in place of those sort of, that sort of necessary structural support and social safety net um, causes a lot of harm for the people that I spoke to. Now, you also said that there were lots of correlations between low-wage jobs and pain. Uh, can you tell us about this in regards to the Medicaid eligibility in the state of Missouri? Um, so I'm not quite sure about the Medicaid eligibility. What do you mean about that? Well, you talk in your book about there were lots of people who were not eligible for Medicaid and they had some type of accidents or suffered in terms of a low wage job. They could not get health care. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, 
uh, these interviews were also conducted before um, a lot of people had access to um, healthcare through um, the uh, ACA. Um, and so there were a lot of people who didn't have access um, to healthcare through their jobs, which is primarily the way that um, people in the US were getting access um, to healthcare. And um, a lot of low wage jobs result in pain. Um, and they're also the jobs that don't offer um, health care, um, which is both preventative health care and um, treatment of problems. And so um, there are a lot of risk factors of low wage jobs, a lot of repetitive motion, um, physically strenuous labor, just being on your feet all day, um, lack of paid sick leave, um, that people work through even when they're experiencing injuries um, uh, or exhaustion because they need that paycheck to pay their bill, um, that they are living paycheck to paycheck. And um, as a result, they their pain just intensifies um, over uh, time. So um, yeah, there were many stories of people um, that I that I spoke to who were in these low wage jobs and um, they described how they didn't have time for doctor's office visits, um, but also they didn't have time for all the other things that can help um, with your health in terms of cooking, in terms of sleeping, um, exercise. Um, and instead they just were experiencing a lot of pain that could result in all sorts of injury and exhaustion um, that can cause their body and mind to break over time. You talk about a 27-year-old who saw the doctor at the workplace, and that's how she was prescribed medication. Did you find yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, yeah, the I, I, her name was Rachel, um, and she described how she worked at a factory seven days a week, 12-hour shifts, and just these repetitive motions being exhausting, um, and how she was prescribed uh, medication by a doctor on site, um, and that that was um, a common practice um, at the factory where she worked. Um, and I think it really illustrates that um, these employers um, recognized that it was not sustainable for an employee to be working seven days a week, 12-hour shifts. Um, but instead of reducing their hours, increases their pay so that they don't have to work um, all of those um, time, that the solution here was to medicate, um, to sort of dull this pain, um, which we know pain is an indication to us that there's something wrong. Um, that it's a, something before we break. Um, and so you can medicate um, this pain and then it just results in breaking someone. Um, but in the United States, um, labor is often disposable, especially people in low-wage jobs. And so um, that was not um, a concern of the employer because they know, well, if I break this one person, that there's always someone else who's willing to come. And so um this is how people end up in these terrible situations. And um, Rachel describing this um, uh, really illustrates this point. I also must note that um, all the names that I'm using are, that are used in the book are pseudonyms. Um, so none of these are their actual names, um, but they were ways for me to remember um, their stories. Um, but the way that things are de-identified, I 
wasn't able to tell who was who um, within hours after conducting the interviews um, themselves. Another event, childbirth. You talk about how this could develop into addiction. Tell us about Kate. Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, so as I said, that um, my background is in um, medical sociology and medicalization and um the medicalization of childbirth is something that a lot of medical sociologists have paid attention to, um, as well as the medicalization of motherhood, um, that prescribing pills to new mothers has become increasingly the norm, um, in part because childbirth is treated as this medical event. Um, over 99% of uh, births, childbirth today in the U.S. take place in a hospital, um, and over a third end up in a C-section, which is more than double what the World Health Organization recommends, in part because a C-section is a major surgery um, and requires um, quite a bit of recovery and can have a lot of adverse effects um, for mother and child. Um, and so a number of um, the the people that we spoke to, particularly the the mothers, um, talked about um, this event of childbirth and how they had been prescribed um, pills for recovery of the physical childbirth, um, but then also for emotional and psychological um, recovery. Um, and that those prescriptions ended up um, causing harm, that um, many of them were struggling, um, that it's really challenging to be a parent, particularly a mother in the United States, where we don't have guaranteed um, paid time off, um, particularly for um, low-wage mothers, um, that poor and working-class mothers are much less likely to have any time, paid time off, um, to spend with their children. And the U.S. is um, one of the only industrialized nations not to provide this um, to mothers, but in addition to provide affordable childcare, um, psychological support, um, and again, often the one thing that's um, provided for them is um, uh, a prescription, but only for a short period of time. Um, and so you you asked about Katie. Um, she was um, uh, one of these people I spoke to, and she, she had her first child at 14. Um, she was kicked out of her house, so she was particularly alone. Um, and she was prescribed, uh, pills. She, she gave birth via emergency C-section. Um, so she was prescribed Percocet, um, for a long time. Um, and then she's prescribed a variety of other pills to support with her anxiety and her depression that she was a kid on her own trying to raise another kid. Um, and without any of the support, um, and, she did anything she could to um, get um, access to these pills once her prescription ran out, which ended up in her being arrested and um, serving time. And so again, this is um, somebody who didn't have the support they needed and was punished for not having the support they needed. You talk about this case, three kids all by myself, no job, no ride, living on $200 a month. What does this describe? Um, I mean, I think it describes um, just how under-supported um, people are in our society. Um, I think this story was the story of Betsy, um, who uh, 
similarly, she was trying to survive on her own. She describes how she was living on $200 a month, um, that our um, social safety net is abysmal, that, um, that even this notion that you could get by on um, unemployment benefits, on um, child welfare support, that it's impossible. Um, and um, that instead of supporting um, people and providing them with the support they need to raise their kids, to support themselves, to get back on their feet, um, job training programs, um, uh, stipends, housing, um, healthcare, that um, they're often just punished um, through the carceral system um, or um, sort of this band-aid approach of, I can write you a script uh, and maybe that'll help manage some of your pain. Um, when, um, from Betsy's perspective, it was that prescription that made everything worse. She was just getting by. Um, and um, then once she was written um, a prescription for Xanax, in addition to um, pain pills that... Um, just everything fell apart um, because of her desperation to get more. Nugget in your book, you talk about the medications that were prescribed to white women. What type of women are prescribed these drugs and why? Um, well, I think we all are prescribed drugs. Um, I, I think there's... Um, I'm not sure um, specifically what um, data uh, you were interested in, um, but I think related to this notion of mothering, um, that historically um, affluent white women have been prescribed um, a, a whole sort of um, drugs to support this ideal of um, mothering um, that in the 60s, um, we saw um, Mother's Little Helper um, prescribed to um, to mothers to help them sort of manage um, all of the responsibilities that are required of mothers um, that without, again, the the support um, in terms of childcare, in terms of um, housing, in terms of all of these things that mothers are expected to do it all. And um, so that, um, and if mothers in terms of their isolation, um, in terms of this pressure on them to do everything that um, they can commonly experience anxiety and depression. And um, so there's this long history of um, medicating um, these mothers um, and saying that you need to have an appropriate level of emotionality, um, that you can't be too depressed and dull, but also not too angry about um, the injustice of the situation. And so there is a long history of um, uh, medicalizing and treating white women um, with um, prescriptions for uh, even the, the, again, talking about medicalization of issues, um, the idea of hysteria, um, that women who were challenging the system, that they were hysterical um, um, rather than justly angry about um, the situation. And so um, 
this sort of intersects with increasingly how all mothers are medicalized um, in terms of who has greater interaction with healthcare systems um, and people who have more interactions with healthcare systems are going to experience that medicalization. Um, but who has the power to challenge that medicalization um, to say, I don't want to take those pills or if they want them to continue to use them um, and get a doctor's prescription so that they are um, so that they are doing it legally um, versus um other mothers who are um, who don't have access, um, they either don't have the power to um, to to challenge um, that medicalization or to maintain access um, to that medicalization, and also how they are similarly held to these um, impossible ideals that are impossible for the affluent um, woman who has access to financial support to access to all sorts of um, support in their mothering process. Um, and they also are unable to meet these ideals. But then um, for the people who don't have access to all of those resources, um, that these are completely impossible ideals. Is it easier for some people to navigate the spaces where they are labeled criminal addict than somebody else? Oh, I don't, I don't really know. Um, well, you talk I, about I, these two brothers. That may give us the example as to what. Um, sure, yeah. So um, I think you're referring to James um, and his brother. Um, James uh, was incarcerated for um, his non-medical prescription drug use and um, he describes how um, he was introduced to um, these drugs through his brother. Um, both of them worked in manual labor, really strenuous jobs, suffered a lot of injuries. And his brother said, this can help you um, um, uh, manage the injuries, but manage the daily exhaustion. And so he started using um, and he ends up getting caught. He's serving time. Um, and in the interview, he describes how his brother was just this upstanding guy. Um, and that James, James, he's like, I'm an addict. I'm an addict and a junkie, unlike my brother. Um, and um, the only difference between him and his brother is that he was arrested. Uh, so he was arrested and that he was forced into this treatment program that told him, you're an addict. Once an addict, always an addict. Um, this is in your biology, um, and um, that you're a criminal. Um, so not just an addict. Um, and um, his brother didn't experience that, um, and his brother was able to hold down his job because he wasn't arrested. Um, and so it was interesting in terms of how James made sense of it that he said, "Well." Um, the reason I'm here is because I'm an addict and because I, I do these bad things. Um, when his brother did all the same things, he just wasn't arrested for them. And that he was a great dad. Um, he was a great brother. Um, that um, James was all those things too until he was arrested. And so it was the process of incarceration and criminalization um, that 
then again, talking about this Foucaultian, um, that the punishing of his body, but also the punishing of his psyche that he internalized and convinced himself that he is this bad person. After writing this book, what is the message you want the reader to leave with? Sure. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of messages. Um, I think that ultimately people need more social support above all else. They need financial support, social support, um, that we are, um, we intensify, um, harm for the already marginalized in our society. Um, and that this idea of a medical approach to, um, some of these issues that this is, um, doing less harm is really this false, this false notion, um, that in fact, um, this can intensify harms, um, particularly when it's linked with our, um, carceral, um, systems. So, um, I think what I would want people to take away is, um, to recognize that these are very complicated issues. Um, obviously if there were a simple solution, we would already be there. Um, but that, the criminalization of poverty, um, the criminalization of the injustices people are already facing um, is only making matters worse um, rather than helping uh, people. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? Sure. Yeah. So as I said, I do research related to medical sociology and um, resistance and social movements. So I have two projects. Um, one um, that similarly um, came out of this um, hearing sort of the stories of people's housing struggles. Um, there is a, a local um, grassroots organization called Kansas City Tenants um, who is fighting for um, housing justice. Um, and so I've been doing work with them um, recently. And then I have another book project about um, DIY science. Um, so similarly related to this book about how people use um medicine and science on their own, um, in ways to resist systems, um, and, um, how this reflects sort of inequities and issues with existing institutions, um, and systems related to medicine and healthcare. Um, so those are two separate book projects that I'm hoping to get out in the next few years. Well, we'll be looking forward to those. Thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I, this was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate these thoughtful questions and for you taking the time to read the book and talk to me today. Thank you.